You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. My interview this week is with Julian Barnes, the author of Arthur and George. First, let's meet George. Each morning, George takes the first train of the day into Birmingham. He knows the timetable by heart and loves it. Worley and Churchbridge, 739, Blockswich, 748, Birchills, 753, Walsall, 758, Birmingham New Street, 835. He no longer feels the need to hide behind his newspaper. Indeed, from time to time he suspects that some of his fellow passengers are aware that he is the author of Railway Law for the Man in the Train, 237 copies sold. He greets ticket collectors and station masters, and they return his salute. He has a respectable moustache, a briefcase, a modest fob chain, and his bowler has been augmented by a straw hat for summer use. He also has an umbrella. He is rather proud of this last possession, often taking it with him in defiance of the barometer. On the train, he reads the newspaper and tries to develop views on what is happening in the world. Last month there was an important speech in the new Birmingham Town Hall by Mr Chamberlain about the colonies and preferential tariffs. George's position, though as yet no one has asked him for his opinion on the matter, is one of cautious endorsement. Next month, Lord Roberts of Kandahar is due to receive the freedom of the city, an honour with which no reasonable man could possibly quarrel. His paper tells him other news, more local, more trivial. Another animal has been mutilated in the Worley area. George wonders briefly which part of the criminal law covers this sort of activity, Would it be destruction of property under the Theft Act, or might there be some relevant statute covering one or other particular species of animal involved? He is glad he works in Birmingham, and it will be only a matter of time before he lives there too. He knows he must make the decision. He must stand up to father's frowns and mother's tears and Maud's silent yet more insidious dismay. Each morning, as fields dotted with livestock give way to well-ordered suburbs, George feels a perceptible lift in his spirits. Father told him years ago that farm boys and farm hands were the humble whom God loved and who would inherit the earth. Well, only some of them, he thinks, and not according to any rules of probate that he is familiar with. And now, let's meet Arthur as he meets George. George came to the Grand Hotel, anticipating a concentrated examination of the evidence in his case. The conversation has taken several unexpected turns. Now he is feeling somewhat lost. Arthur senses a certain dismay in his new young friend. He feels responsible. He is meant to be encouraging. Enough reflection, then. It is time for action. Also for anger. George, those who have supported you so far, Mr Yelverton and all the rest, have done sterling work. They have been utterly diligent and correct. If the British state were a rational institution, you would even now be back at your desk in Newhall Street. But it is not. So my plan is not to repeat the work of Mr Yelverton, to express the same reasonable doubts and make the same reasonable requests. I am going to do something different. I am going to make a great deal of noise. The English, the official English, do not like noise. They think it vulgar. It embarrasses them. But if calm reason has not worked... I shall give them noisy reason. I shall not use the back stairs, but the front steps. I shall bang a big drum. 
I intend to shake more than a few trees, George, and we shall see what rotten fruit falls down. Sir Arthur stands to say goodbye. Now he towers over the little law clerk. Yet he has not done this in their conversation. George is surprised that such a famous man can listen as well as fulminate, be gentle as well as forceful. Despite this last declaration, however, he feels the need for some basic verification. Sir Arthur, may I ask, to put it simply, you think me innocent? Arthur looks down with a clear, steady gaze. George, I have read your newspaper articles, and now I have met you in person. So my reply is, no, I do not think you are innocent. No, I do not believe you are innocent. I know you are innocent. Then he extends a large athletic hand, toughened by numerous sports of which George is entirely ignorant. And now, the interview with Julian Barnes. Julian Barnes is the author of Flaubert's Parrot and the short story collection titled The Lemon Table. He translated Alphonse Daudet's In the Land of Pain, and his new novel is Arthur and George. Welcome to the program, Julian. Nice to be here. Julian, tell us a little bit about this novel. One of the things that interests me, at the beginning, you don't reveal exactly who the characters are. It takes a while to work up to who they are. So tell us why you did that, and then tell us who they are and what the setup of the novel is. (laughs) Well... We, I, I delayed telling you who Arthur and George were because there is who we think we are ourselves, but who we actually are is who other people think we are as well. And so there's a moment in both their lives when they become, when they really justify and own their surnames. And in George's case, he's the son of a Scottish mother. He's brought up as the son of a judgment vicar in the middle of... Staffordshire, the centre of England. And that's what he thinks he is. But his father is actually a Parsee, and so he bears the surname of Adelgy, a name which I withhold until the point at which the fact that he is of mixed race becomes relevant in his life when, a, when he encounters a, a prejudiced policeman. So I withhold that, that name for about 30 pages, maybe. Um, Actually, it's interesting that you say I withhold it for a long time because that's what other readers have said. In, in terms of the book's length, it's quite a short time, but in terms of not knowing who these characters are, it feels long, I think. And then Arthur, um, who is, of course, the much more famous Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the um, inventor of Sherlock Holmes, though he knows he's called Arthur Conan Doyle, he doesn't become Arthur Conan Doyle in quotes until the point at which he writes Sherlock Holmes. And so I withhold his, his surname until that point. I mean, I had to fight with publishers both in America and in, in, in Britain to keep those names off the dust wrapper. But uh, I wanted the reader to be kept in the same state of innocence that the two characters were until they really came to own and possess their surnames. It's interesting that you decided to tell this story in true life as fiction. Did you consider telling it, writing it as a nonfiction work? Very briefly, I did when I first discovered the story, but um, I thought it might make a sort of interesting short non-fiction book. I realized that, for a start, most of the characters would have to be invented from the ground up. You know, George only exists really as a predicament, a footnote in legal history. Uh, Conan Doyle, of course, is is much better documented. But even so, there's a there's a great there was a great emotional black hole at the heart of Arthur's life, which I needed to cover. 
and describe, and that could only be done in fiction. And I think if it had been non-fiction, it would have included too many of those, to me, dreadful little sentences, starting things like, surely at this point... George must have felt terribly depressed. Or <laughs> uh, uh, it is probable that Arthur then got angry. You know, I don't want to write that stuff. I did, never want to write a sentence like that. The language in this novel is, in fact, quite lovely, and you do some interesting things with it. In the Lemon Table, your collection of short stories, it's a straightforward, kind of stripped-down, modern language, but you do a little bit of going back and forth between a somewhat mannered prose here and a prose that's a little more reminiscent of what I read in The Lemon Table. I'm wondering, did, could you tell us a little bit about how you put together the language of this novel? Um, yes. Well, actually, I, I, I slightly disagree with you about The Lemon Table because I think the language varies according to from story to story, and I always try to put the language, at the the, the prose at the service of the plot and the story. And in the Lemon Table, there are stories of which take place in different centuries and in different countries. And so I try to pitch the prose to evoke that time and that country so that in a story which takes place in France, you will have uh, a slight tinge of translation ease. Um, and then, but obviously with a, a con absolutely contemporary story, then I write contemporary prose. The way I pitched it here was, first of all, you have to avoid anachronism. Secondly, I didn't want to write Edwardian prose. But third, I wanted to use the prose to evoke the period. So I, I use a fairly plain prose, which doesn't set the reader any problems, but you use from time to time phrases and words of that Edwardian period, which are clearly different from modern language and yet are clearly comprehensible to the reader. For example, at that period, they didn't always call a tennis court a tennis court because a tennis court meant a real or royal tennis court, the ancient game, and they called it often the tennis ground. Now, you just have to drop that in a couple of times, three times at the most, and the reader is directed to a different time. The reader is not... Um, discombobulated, the reader can understand exactly what it, what what is meant, but at the same time gets a little twist, which I hope puts them back at that time. Tell us a little bit about one of the themes here that's pretty important, at least in George's life, is this idea of the revenge of his schoolmates, the problems that that he encounters at school. This is a common theme in, particularly in British literature, this kind of bullies and bullying in school, boys' schools, this whole boys' school culture. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that that is only a, a, a few brief incidents at the beginning of the book when he's at very junior school and, and when he gets to a more senior school at age about 10 or 11, he doesn't have this problem. And it's just dropped in at the beginning. It's not meant to be a big theme, but it is meant to Actually, if you go back and look at it after you've got to the end of the book, which I don't want to sort of give away, there are key names at the at the, at the early bullying stage, which which do um, come back into the into the story, and it's a question, you know, of uh, motivation for the people who start a, a, a process of um, anonymous letters and sort of hoaxes towards George and his family. Tell me a little bit about the research you did for this book. 
obviously, as you said, there's a lot on Doyle, but there's not a lot on George. So how did you create George? Well, I read what there was. I read what uh, Conan Doyle said about him, her character description, though though Doyle's character description is slightly at odds with the descriptions of him, his appearance in court in provincial uh, newspapers that I read, Birmingham newspapers. Well, what was uh, the difference? Uh, well, um, according to Conan Doyle, he was a very shy and nervous boy. According to the newspaper reports, he stepped into the dock and gave his evidence in a clear, calm voice and seemed very self-possessed. Now, uh, it seems to me that he was n nervous and shy with Arthur Conan Doyle because Arthur Conan Doyle was a very large and incredibly famous Englishman uh, to whom, on whom he was pinning his hopes, whereas he was confident and well-spoken in the court because he was a lawyer and he thought he knew his way around. So um, instantly you have, in the, in, the, in the small character descriptions you have of him, you have, you have a, a, a paradox set up so, which you have to resolve. So, but that, that, that doesn't bother me as a fiction writer because people are indeed, you know, behave shyly with one person and confidently with another. So I realised that I had very little to work with. I read some of George's newspaper articles. I read his book on railway law. Uh, railway law for the man in the train, and trying to deduce his character from a book like that was quite a quite a technical challenge for a writer. But uh, you know, but but it's in a way I would rather deal with someone like George and have to invent him largely from the ground up than deal with someone like Arthur, who's very well biographed and autobiographed, and therefore you have, you're constantly chipping away and cutting bits off him and and only use it, using the bits you know and deliberately not writing a biography. Tell us a little bit about the figure of Doyle. He's a fascinating guy, but not somebody necessarily that we'd expect you to be writing about. <laughs> no, it came as a surprise to me, really, because I came to it through the case itself, and the case itself came with the saviour, Arthur Conan Doyle, attached to it. And had it been someone different, I would have been writing about someone different. I mean, of course, like m most English schoolboys, I read Sherlock Holmes as a, as a boy and enjoyed it, but I, he wasn't a... You know, he 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 isn't a, a figure in the major figure in the canon of literature, and in my canon of literature anyway. Um, but as I as I read up about him, I, I I you know he's obviously a completely different sort of writer to me, both in what he writes and also in the fact that he's a very public figure, and I'm a fairly private figure as a writer. But I admired him greatly as a man of 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 honour and guts and determination to go out and do that do things and make a difference. One of the aspects of this novel I found most fascinating was the schismatic perception that the reader develops of the chivalric mores of Doyle, in that we see them through Doyle's eyes, but we have our own experience of them too as well, especially as regards to his lengthy affair. So tell us a little bit about how you developed that, how you conceived that, and how you executed it as a writer. Yes, he was um, he was brought up by his mother, with with the sort of moral and chivalric values of the English fourteenth century when chivalry ruled, and he was brought up to be you know defend the weak and always be honourable towards women, and so on and so forth. And he tried to put this into practice. I mean, in other aspects of his life, he was he was a very modern man. He loved motorbikes and motorcars and new inventions, typewriters and stuff like that. Um, but in his sentimental and moral life, he was he was pitched further back. There are two aspects um, where this comes into play. One is you know, his rescue, his attempted rescue of George, 
it was you could interpret as a, an act of chivalry. He was outraged by the injustice that had been done and set out, you know, like a uh, a knight on a charger to to rescue George. Um, and the other is in his relationship with a young woman called Jean Leckie, who who he he met and fell in love with while he's his his wife who suffered from tuberculosis was ill for many years. But he always maintained, and I think correctly, I mean, I think honestly, that uh, that their relationship was honourable. And uh, uh, some people thought it couldn't be, because some people assume that any couple must be going to bed together. But I think, and I think Doyle biographers agree with me on this, that um, that in fact it was, it was, uh, it was in his, uh, what he said it was, which was a, a difficult but honourable relationship. It's interesting because he tortures himself over it greatly, but from our modern point of view, it's a fairly virtuous and somewhat innocuous and understandable relationship. And I'm wondering, did you think about that as you wrote it? Well, I think it's very important to remember that that our current sexual mores are only those of the last 30 or 40 years. And um, I think I think we tend to assume too lightly that the past is... That, that the past was really a sort of version of the present. But in well, while there was a great deal of, of, of hypocrisy and while there was probably a great deal more sex than a, appeared in the official records of the time, I think that characters like Doyle, I don't know whether they would exist anymore. I don't know whether that inculcation with, with, with um, sort of mixture of Scottish morality and chivalric honour I don't know if anyone's being brought up like that at the moment. Um, and I think it's, of course, it's more interesting to a fiction writer, actually, if if a couple don't go to bed together. I mean, I sort of find as a fiction writer that fidelity is more interesting than infidelity. That's an interesting thought. Why would you say that? Well, because it's probably because it's rarer. <laughs> um and because I don't know, I think it's I think it's interesting to write about. I think uh, you know I, I I suppose thinking of thinking of American presidents, I'd find it more interesting to write about Jimmy Carter, who committed adultery in his heart, than Bill Clinton, who uh, of the famous dress incident, which I find more sort of banal. One of the strong themes in this novel, or at least it seems like it wants to be a strong theme, but it doesn't get a chance to be quite as strong as it wants to, is racism. Well, it's always there, I think. and it's, uh, But this is the way that the British play it. The British like to assume that, it, that, there, that, that um, everything is above board and, and that racism doesn't play a part in things like um, uh, police attitudes. And I deliberately let the reader draw his or her own conclusions about it. I mean, one of the, the fascinating things about the case is that George himself didn't think that his troubles were brought about by racial prejudice. He thought that he had grown up as an Englishman and succeeded as an Englishman at school and then at uh, law college and then become a solicitor. And he hadn't been held back in any way. So maybe one or two sort of primitives in the countryside had some sort of race prejudice, but it was he thought it was illogical and unreasonable and therefore... He didn't go along with this notion, which seemed clear to Conan Doyle and equally clear to us, that the root of his troubles was race prejudice, as it was called at the time. It's an interesting evocation of uh, civil rights in, in this novel. And 
also, it, it has a lot of resonance today in the way that you underplay it. And tell us a little bit about mm. underplaying it. Well, I do think it has a lot of resonance today, both in my country and perhaps in yours, that constantly we're being told that you know, police and official and bureaucratic attitudes have changed and been modernized. And then every so often some terrible event happens, or police beat some poor black guy or, or, or pro- wrongly prosecute um, someone on the grounds of... On the grounds, in George's case, that, you know, if something beastly, some crime of animal mutilation which looks beastly and un-British happens, then you look for someone who is un-British uh, as the likely perpetrator. But I think it's very important in writing fiction to let the reader come to their own conclusion, not to guide them too much, not to tell them what to think. You, you create this objective sort of grand game out there, this... this mechanism uh, into which the reader enters. And while you are the controlling author, you also want to give the reader freedom, uh, freedom to conclude this or to conclude that. You know, you hope that they will, con- they will conclude in the obvious direction, but, but they might, might well not. And that's, that's equally to the point. You know, it's, it's something that you put out there and let, and let readers respond in their own, their own ways. You talked about reading as a grand game that you construct as a writer. And I think this is interesting because this novel seems is very, very rewarding as a reading experience. It's enjoyable to read on a number of levels. I'm wondering if you talk to us as an author about just creating a book that is enjoyable and rich and full of life. Well, uh, that's very nice to hear you say that. I'm not quite sure how to answer it, though. I mean, you just... Uh, I don't know if it's the case that the more you enjoy writing a book, the more the reader will enjoy writing it, reading it. Um, uh, it, it's, it's rather unclear to me. I mean, sometimes books that are terrible struggles turn out to be easy to read. I mean, that's that's one of the things that you that that the problems you have writing a novel, if you solve them, the reader doesn't notice them. Now, did you have a good time writing this book? Was this a difficult book? For I you did to write? have a good time writing this book, and I I, I wrote it with a an intensity and more hours per day than I've ever written any other book. That doesn't mean it's better. That just means that's how I wrote it. But I did... It's certainly true that I felt when I was writing it that the story was driving me on and that it was telling me, you know, come on, get on to the next bit, get on to the next bit. And and I think perhaps some of that sort of pressure and urgency is perhaps transmitted to the reader because I've had lots of readers say, you know, oh, I, I... I wanted to stop, but then I thought, just another chapter, just another chapter. And that same sort of urgency, which was in the writing as well. This novel, too, has a lot of variety in it. One of the things I noticed was that you're often very funny. There's a lot of great humor in here. And it's not exactly what you'd expect to to find jokes that you actually laugh at. The characters tell them, and you tell them. So tell us a little bit about using the humor in here. Well, you don't... I mean, I'm. that's part of my nature as a writer i mean i don't i don't think now's the time for some humor it just sort of it's what emerges from the characters and what emerges from the situation it's not like sort of mixing paint where you think i'll just have a little little drop of that orange and that will turn it out the right color it's something that is happening at a at a slight often at a slightly less conscious level than that the you know writing it seems to me is a is a is a mixture between uh, absolute control and knowing what you're doing, and yet a sort of free flowingness and a half half disguising from yourself what's going on, and certain elements of it 
flow out from inside you without your deliberately deciding at that point are paragraph three, let's have some irony, paragraph four, let's have some broader humour. It's what com- it's what comes out of the story and the characters and their particular situations. One of the big subjects of this novel is spiritualism. So tell us a little bit about your research into spiritualism and how it works into the themes of the novel. Well, I I knew very little about spiritualism when I started writing and researching the book. Um, I knew that Conan Doyle became a spiritualist and that towards the end of his life he became rather an absurd figure and authenticating fairy photographs and things like that, which uh, which were uh, rather an intellectual disgrace. But I didn't realise that spiritualism started in, while well, it, it was surrounded by you know, fraud and bogusness from the beginning, it was also, uh, there's one strand of it which was a proper scientific attempt to get rid of all this fraud and to establish what truth could be seen of about the evidence for the survival of the spirit after death. And Doyle began his spiritualism, as many top scientists of the day did, in at a time when, for instance, you know, rare earths and rare gases were being discovered, when what lay just beneath the surface of the physical universe was being laid bare, and it seemed that perhaps, you know, the the the, the world that religion, uh, organized religion, had only perceived dimly, could now finally be laid bare through scientific method, and it also ties in as the. As you know, there are three. To put it very crudely, there are three strands to the book. There's the there's the strand of the criminal case, which uh, there's the, then there's the emotional strand, the emotional life of Arthur Conan Doyle, and then there's the, the spiritualism case. And all three turn around the same sort of questions and the same words. They turn about uh, about around the difference between what we think, what we believe, what we know, what we can prove, and you know, in the spiritualist thread of the story. Arthur thinks that he can move beyond, I think there's a God, I believe there's a God, which is as far as institutional religions will take you, up to, I know there's a God, and I can, what's more, I can prove there's a God, and I can prove that the spirit survives the death of the body. There's an interesting parallel here, too, to some of the stuff that's been talked about recently, both in the UK and the US, uh, the concept of intelligent design. As you said, that the original spiritualists did grow out of this kind of scientific, and it's an interesting combination of science and a stretch, a reach for the spiritualism to yes. try to use science. Yes, to I mean, I think an interesting case is that of Alfred Russell Wallace, when Darwin, who's thought of as the man who, one of the key killers of God in Western civilization, when Darwin's paper was read to the Linnaean Society in London, his paper on evolution by natural selection, uh, there was another paper read at the same time at the insistence of Darwin because this young fellow called Alfred Russell Wallace had also stumbled across or worked out the theory of evolution. And Darwin said, this man has also worked out. His paper must have joint importance with mine. Uh, but Wallace, as it turned out, uh, far from uh, uh, agreeing to kill God, thought that um, became a devout spiritualist and thought that evolution only proved the animal development of man, and that at a certain point, some superior being of some unknown nature had inserted into this developing clay and animal uh, a spirit or a soul. So he was able to combine 
evolution with some sort of, I guess, intelligent design theory. One of the things that's interesting, too, about this novel is you mentioned this, this kind of duality, what we think we are, what we are, fiction and fact. There's a lot of fiction and a lot of fact, and the novel itself combines those yes, two aspects. Yes, I often operate in that sort of area. I mean, I have in the past, in Flaubert's Parrot History of the World, I... You know, I find my stories where I where they lie, and the fact that they might lie in the factual world rather than the fictional world doesn't bother me too much as long as they're good stories. So tell us a little bit about when you're writing a mystery, you are also solving the mystery as well. So tell us a little bit about your approach to this as a using the research, because you were looking into something that's not necessarily well-known. And you leave some interesting red herrings about in just talking about this as a work of crime fiction. It's a, it's a fascinating and literary work in that matter. Yes. Uh, I mean, it starts with a crime which people think they've solved, and then it turns out that it was wrongly solved by the police. And then along comes Sherlock Holmes. Uh, <laughs> it's an easy error to make Conan Doyle playing Sherlock Holmes, who, in his view, properly solves it. And yet... If this were a thriller, which I made up, he would properly solve it, but because that's the rules of the game. But as it's a novel, it's much closer to real life, and in real life things are usually not solved, things are, are not usually resolved. We, we settle for a solution which isn't perhaps a 100% true solution. And so, without giving anything away, what Doyle comes up with is much more muddy and much more uh, and almost as contentious as the solution that was put in place by the police in the first case. You have a lot of fun with interrogation scenes in here and there's a particular scene where Magistrate Anson and Doyle go after one another and what you call brutalized civility <laughs> or <laughs> yes. civilized brutality. Yes, that's a big head-to-head -head scene where the fundamental disagreements about the case are made plain. And in fact, it's the scene I, I wrote first, even though it comes towards the end of the book. I wanted to get on, get down on paper, you know, the 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 two the two um, you know head buttings between these these guys between between um, and and to put it in its sort of uh, most vigorous form. So then I sort of I knew where the where the central argument lay. You're no stranger to writing crime fiction. That's true. I, I I wrote four crime novels when I was when I was much younger, but I haven't written a crime novel for twenty years. Now now you also to when you created those novels, you also uh, created a crime writer. Mm hmm. So That's true. I, I, I wrote them under a pseudonym of Dan Kavanagh because my first, I wrote my first novel, first Julian Barnes novel, and it took me about eight years. And then something released the floodgates of, of energy in me at that point when I'd finished. And I wrote a thought, well, why did I try and write a crime novel? I wrote it in 10 days. And then I wrote another one not long afterwards. And I thought, well, I'd better separate these literary personalities in case one of them gets out of control. So I, I, you know, I invented the pseudonym, which I then ran with for about six years. But it was, uh, I enjoyed writing them. But I, but in a funny kind of way, when I started, I only wrote four. When I started, I found the lim the requirements of the genre liberating. But by the time I got to the fourth, I found the requirements of the genre really constricting rather than liberating. And also that they, to be honest, they weren't as successful as 
as books like Flaubert's Parrot were rather to the surprise of some people who assumed I was writing my thrillers in order to support these uh, these literary novels. Turned out to be the other it way around. Turned out to be the other way around, and it did seem silly to be writing Flaubert's Parrot in order to support detective fiction. You actually created the character of Dan Kavanaugh as a person, and you su- supplied him with a biography. Did yes, this did I this did. help you? That was just fun. I mean, I, each time he wrote a novel, I, I supplied him with a new mythical biography. You know, I thought, why not? Why not write write a fictional? author's note as well as, 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 as a detective story. So I, each, each time he had different um, uh, famous capabilities which, which were particularly suited to the novel which, in, which his, the main character had, uh, uh, had had to solve crimes about. You yourself, as you said, you found, eventually found the limits of the genre to be a limiting you as a writer. And you made an interesting comment about Sherlock Holmes in that, and Conan Doyle in that they created a fantasy of mystery. Yes, I think, I think that's partly why they, Sherlock Holmes is still so popular, that it is a, it is a, he's, he's a great literary archetype, but there's also a sort of, um, uh, Conan Doyle successfully created a fantasy of detection whereby um, a highly intelligent man sitting alone in his study thinking very hard and perhaps taking a little cocaine and playing his violin could solve the most intricate mystery that had been presented to him. And I think it is a fantasy. I don't think any policeman would uh, get very far doing that. He'd also get arrested for Class A drugs or whatever they're called in your country. That's what they're called in mine. So, uh, but it still holds good, you know. It still holds in thrall. We like the idea of the absolutely impenetrable crime being elegantly and rationally solved. We like the idea that 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 reason will always solve crimes, whereas, you know, there are other, there are other detectives who are equally uh, archetypal, like uh, Maigret, Georges Simenon's Maigret, who, who often uses instinct and emotion and feel and, and smell as much as, as, as a raw intellect. And one of the aspects is that you mentioned that the crime is solved, which it isn't in your book, is it? Not really, no. I mean, one person thinks it's solved and the other person thinks it isn't solved. Um, and th- indeed, though <coughs> though Doyle presented lots of evidence to the Home Office about who he thought had really performed the crime, the Home Office took absolutely no notice of him uh, to his irritation. And the, the idea, what's interesting in this exchange that he has with the uh, that's at the core of the book is this uh, uh, combat between really between fact and fiction in that he's applying his fictional techniques to a factual situation which is a lot more complicated than his fictional techniques yes, allow though actually what he does he, he it's a sort of version of, of Sherlock Holmes investigates except that one of the differences is that he has, Kennedy also has a sidekick, a sort of Dr. Watson figure, and that in the Holmes books, Watson is a sort of rather a bumbling fool who says the obvious things, and but which are always wrong. Whereas, whereas I, I play it slightly differently, um, and that there's this figure called Mr. Wood, who is uh, was indeed in real life Arthur Conan Doyle's sort of sidekick and gopher, 
Uh, he keeps saying very obvious things, which are dismissed by Conan Doyle as this is that's far too you know obvious. Of course, it couldn't be the case, but many of them turn out to be true. You know, why? So why did the persecution stop for seven years? Oh, because um, because the person in charge of of doing them wasn't there anymore. Oh no, that's much too obvious. Where could he have been? Oh, he might have gone to see. Oh, ridiculous! And then 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 it turns out that indeed, Mister Woods intuitions or or even basic assumptions turn out to be true. One of the interesting aspects of this book, and this is what makes it such a full book, is there's a really, there's actually two very nicely done romances in here with uh, uh, featuring Conan Doyle. So tell us a little bit about developing this romantic thread and how it works into the rest of the novel. Well, not too much is known of Conan Doyle's emotional life. We know uh, who the two women he was involved with and, and married were, but in his autobiography especially, uh, he's extremely um, discreet. You know, he was an Englishman of his day and he didn't write about his emotional life. So that was actually quite a good invitation to me to write two different sorts of wooings, one in which the first one in which Arthur was very clearly the man in charge um, and was sort of showing his future wife round uh, South Sea and the Isle of Wight, almost as if he was they were on a sort of tourist ex- expedition. Or, um, and he was very much the, the boss. And then, the, then years later, when he's um, much more famous and seemingly absolutely in charge of everything in his life, suddenly, you know, Jean Leckie, this young Scottish woman, sneaks underneath his radar and and her approach to him is not one that he's ever met from a woman before, and he falls hook, line, and sinker in love with her. One aspect that plays, it's very important in this novel, are beginnings and endings. Hmm. Yes. I mean, Conan Doyle said about his writing, he said, you know, how can you know the beginning unless you know the ending? And I apply this much more broadly in the book, for instance, in The Spiritualist, theme to it. Conan Doyle would say, you know, how how can you possibly know how to live, what morality is, how we should behave to one another, unless you know what the end of life is. You know, if you don't know the end of life, if you don't, if you aren't convinced that there is a God, or if you aren't convinced that the spirit survives, how can you know how to live in the beginning of life? And so uh, that that's a theme that runs through it, and it's the book is divided into sections called beginnings and beginning with an ending, ending with a beginning, and then endings. One other aspect that I wanted to bring up is the author's note that ends the book. You do a great job of, once again, combining fact and fiction in working the the author's note into the fictional threads of the book. And I'm wondering, was this deliberate? Did you discover this? I was uncertain whether to, to, to put an author's note at the end or not. I tried it both ways and I asked people's advice. I thought that it was only fair to tell the reader what documents were authentic in the book and what could be absolutely relied on and also to make some give a footnote about uh, subsequent developments after the events of the book. And when I sent it in to my British publisher, his first response was, well, he liked it, obviously, but he then said, "Um, by the way, I take it you made up George Adelgie. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he was an invented case, presumably, wasn't he? 
I know Doyle existed, but I, you invented the case. I said, what makes you think that? Didn't you read the, the author's note at the end? And he said, yes, I did, but I thought you made that up as well. So <laughs> it was actually very gratifying to, to, to have someone think, and I don't mind if someone thinks the author's note is entirely untrue or invented, because, it, you know, you're reading it as a story. I mean, I'm obviously it's fiction based on fact rather than, you know. So, so I, I did feel responsibility at the end. Um, but I, but I'm happy if someone thought, oh, this is. He he thought it was an example of postmodernism. You see that I had given all this false documentation at the end. We've been speaking with Julian Barnes. His new novel is Arthur and George. Thanks for speaking. Thanks very much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.